Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, to many of us, is a mental health disorder that uh, can affect both adults and children. Uh, Professor Andre Fenter is a neurodevelopmental pediatrician and a former academic head of pediatrics at Free State University. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Prof, welcome to the show. Hi, Pamela. Good afternoon. Can we simplify ADHD and its definition for us, please? Yeah, I, I think the name ADHD is even a bit of a misnomer, mm-hmm. but um, it, it stands for Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder, and that actually highlights two of the aspects of ADHD, but it has actually another few aspects as well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include impulsivity. I'll speak about them all in a minute. Ah, okay. and, and, and we are now looking internationally whether we shouldn't add emotionality to it, because that seems to be very closely linked uh, to ADHD, especially in children. <laughs> but attention deficit doesn't mean that you can't attend at all. It means that you can't attend if you think things are boring or um, irrelevant or on demand, which, of course, is like school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like when you have to do your income taxes, that kind of feeling <laughs> that you just haven't got the crap. I love that. It. I love that because what that makes me wonder about is that... Mm. If we have a great, by by numbers, by way of numbers, if we have a greater part of the population which is meant to be in school are showing these signs of no attention because things are boring, as you just said now, is the problem the children or the system? (laughs) Well, I think if you really wanted to have it all that exciting, we wouldn't get too much academics done (laughs) for these children. We have to... But, you know, we have to cotton down. But, you know, only about 5% of children have this condition. So it's, it's not really? as prevalent as people think. Really? Um, I've just been working on the international consensus document uh, paper on this. And uh, the research worldwide shows that it's only about 5, maximum about 5.9% of the population in children. It's about half of that in adults. And so the sensationalism around it that it's getting more and more is not true. It hasn't become any more in the last 30 years. Really? The prevalence has not increased. That's I alarming think- to me. That's really, really. So, so why, where do you think um, we, we get in the idea that there is more I, of it out there? I think, first of all, more are being diagnosed. I, I think see. that's probably true. Yes. But what is definitely changed is that many more are receiving treatment. And I think that's what's created this feeling that it is actually, you know, so common. But and it's really not all that common. Yes. And, and, and the treatment element of it is getting some pushback. Why do you think that is? I think because the treatment is misunderstood mm-hmm. uh, to a large extent. And I think, you know, just, just like you get, you get positive reporting bias and negative reporting bias. Mm-hmm. And negative reporting bias in medication um, often hits the highlights mm-hmm. and, the, and the headlines and not the positive ones. And I think that's a part of it. But we also have to understand that medication is only one aspect of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole lot of other things that one has to attend to, not necessarily do something about it, but 
you have to make sure the education, as you rightly said, is appropriate and is the best for the child. You have to make sure that he's nutrition, and I'm not a nutritionist, mm-hmm. I don't want to go on and mm-hmm. on about nutrition mm-hmm. in these children, because there's very little evidence about nutrition, but we have to make sure they're healthy, mm-hmm. and we have to make sure they are fit, and we have to make sure they have social skills. So there's lots of other aspects here, and we have to help parents you know, deal with them. So um, there's more to it than just popping a pill. The diagnosis that we are seeing, as you said, maybe that's increased, not necessarily the number of cases. Are we yeah. certain that those are correct diagnoses? Well, I can't speak to that, but mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 it depends what where you come from. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been in this field so long; it takes me about ten minutes, and I am pretty sure whether there's a diagnosis or not. But there are very standard ways of of, of interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, that that are taught, and and as long as you go through those standard interviews fairly rigorously, you won't easily miss the ADHD. Mm -hmm. You may miss the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. because there are a few things that can look like ADHD, but they are not. Mm -hmm. But you won't miss the ADHD part, I think. Mm but, but the best diagnosis is still to have a knowledgeable person asking the right questions from the parents and the child, if we're talking about childhood adolescence. Sure. If it's adult uh, ADHD, um, then it's more to do with talking to your partner, to your, you know, the, the collateral is very important. Yes. Um, but I think, I think in most places we underdiagnose ADHD, not overdiagnose it. Uh, certainly there are pockets in South yes. Africa where it's totally overdiagnosed. Yeah. That's true too. Okay. All right. So let's get back, I suppose, to the original question. You've mentioned the fact that we we are speaking about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You also mentioned that perhaps we should have a conversation about impulsivity, emotionality. Yes. Let's talk about emotionality a little bit. And what do you mean by that? Well, emotionality is interesting. Uh, it's the part of the brain where emotional um, that generates emotions for us is very close to the areas that, that have to do with ADHD. Mm. And uh, what is important about these children is that they over and underreact. Okay. Emotionally, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and, and so, would you call it EQ? It's is a it, bit of that, it, yes. Is it, is it a bit of Def- that? Definitely is a bit of that. And, and often that is one of the reasons why they, they don't appear to be school ready is because that area is not very well developed. What, what, what do we even know what causes ADHD? Do we know what causes it? Yes. Well, that's a broad question because there's the biological causes and, of course, there's the other causes. Yes. But biologically, it is, and, and I can speak again from the consensus document that's just been published. Mm-hmm. If you look at all the data, it's still a genetic disorder mm-hmm. or a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. that is modified somewhat by environmental factors. Mm-hmm. Now, those environmental factors are not as obvious as they may sound. We, we know about severe childhood deprivation, you know, those type of things causing it. But um, there's definitely a correlation with premature deliveries. There's a correlation with birth asphyxia. But there's a really a strong correlation with family history. But biologically, we know what causes it is that there is not adequate neurotransmitters in the brain in those areas that Mm. look after attention, mm-hmm. impulsive behavior, and um, hyperactive behavior. There's, there's, a, there's a lack of dopamine, as we call it, which is like the feel-good um, transmitter in the brain, mm-hmm. and somewhat more epinephrine, which is a bit like the adrenaline in the brain. Mm-hmm. So we've spoken about what may need to be included. Talk to me about the other elements that were not included in our definition. 
Well, I think there's very well, yeah, there's very close uh, correlation with learning difficulties, mm-hmm. especially dyslexic type of learning difficulties, because of auditory processing that's a, a major problem in these children. Um, and then the one thing that I don't really want to link, but it is very important, it is very common in children with autism. Mm-hmm. So there is there is quite a link there. Um, so yes, those are the other things that we must look at when we evaluate children with ADHD, if we're not missing some of those diagnoses. And the last one I want to mention is anxiety state. Mm-hmm. High prevalence of anxiety in these children, and of course, anxiety in children often looks like ADHD in its own right. Mm. It's one of the imitators yeah. and, of and, ADHD. And, and what you're saying is that you could have just that on its own, and it's not necessarily ADHD. Yep. And, and, and that's why I think you, I started off by saying a knowledgeable person. Yes. I, I think that one must just not have a questionnaire and pick it and say you've got it. Mm-hmm. There's more to it than meets the eye. Because it could be that we're just dealing with anxiety and yes. maybe severe anxiety, and yes. it's only that. And sometimes these things mask each other. Yes. Anxiety can mask it. Uh, autism can mask it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes ADHD masks autism. It can go the other way around as well. Mm-hmm. So you have you have to be a little bit astute mm-hmm. when you it's, make the diagnosis. Well, come, but all the other tricks that people do, you know, the, the computer-based uh, diagnosis, EEG-based diagnosis, blood-level diagnosis, all of those, none of them are as good as a good interview. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm getting anxious. <laughs> because because I imagine a parent who's faced with all of these possibilities, who's seeing multiple different specialists and is still none the wiser. And I've just heard you now and I'm thinking, okay, so then how do we then guide parents? I suppose that's my next question. Let me just take a quick break. I'll be back. And I would love your questions as well um, on 011-714-2006. And you can also send WhatsApp notes on 0614-104-107. Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. We're discussing ADHD with Professor Andre Fenter, who's a neurodevelopment um, a pediatrician, a former academic head of pediatrics at Free State University as well. So, Prof, I think the big question for me is then, you know, we obviously are having this conversation to, to assist our listeners. And as a parent, if there's a parent listening and is really confused about the diagnosis, because it can be quite complicated, where does one go for support? How do you know that it is? Coupled yeah. with that is obviously it's tough to acknowledge the fact that your child has got real difficulties because sometimes we think this reflects on us. <laughs> I think that is sometimes the stone in the path that yeah. spoils the whole road, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, to diagnosis. Yeah. But let, let me step a little bit back and, and, and I, maybe it's a question we need to address if your child's at school, because you know, I haven't spoken about adolescents and adults at all, yeah. but if your child is in school, what would make you think that the child has an attention deficit disorder? I mean, most parents are so used to their children's behavior that they don't even realize that it's not Correct. You know, yeah. quite typical. Yeah. But the teacher's complaints are sometimes very specific, and I think those are the red flags, although you know that a teacher is not allowed to make a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. 
But a teacher can call in a parent and say, maybe you should have your child checked because there's certain issues. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the biggest markers is a child who does not finish their work in time. Mm -hmm. Um, There may be other reasons, of course, um, but but that's quite a good marker. If a child's in the right school with a normal intelligence and, you know, all the rest is in place, but the child's not finishing their work in class. That's the first one. A child who battles to sit in the chair and is looking for excuses to get up all the time, mm-hmm. and a child whose environment is absolute chaos, hmm. and a child that makes silly errors. Hmm. Those, those are often sort of generalized markers. I mean, they're not absolute, mm-hmm. but they're sort of generalized markers. So where do parents then go to get help? In our country, we are not that privileged that we can say that every child that has a problem has to be seen by a pediatric psychiatrist. That would actually have been the ideal. But we just don't have those people in this country. There are many of us, and developmental pediatricians can do this too, and we're a handful of people in the country. So you have to look in your environment who is the person you can go to. First of all, we mustn't underestimate the value of the psychologists because they are allowed to make the diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. But they can't make it on tests. They've got to make it on the interview. (laughs) The second thing is, then you need to go to your pediatric psychiatrist, pediatrician, developmental pediatrician, if they're around, but in some towns, there are no such people there. Mm. Then you have to go to the next step, which is going to be going to your general pediatrician or your general practitioner. And sometimes, and I know that a lot of doctors will not like this fact, but sometimes the only people that are in a small town is the occupational therapist and the general practitioner. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the best you've got, mm-hmm. and that's where you've got to start. Mm-hmm. I teach those people, again, that there are red flags. If you find those red flags, you must refer them to bigger centers. You can't sit on them. But for the general grassroots variety ADHD, these people can get quite far Hmm. in the management. But, of course, parents must know if they are not satisfied with the diagnosis that they must go one step higher. So the next step will be a pediatrician or a psychiatrist or a developmental pediatrician or a pediatric psychiatrist. And, of course, I don't want to exclude, again, the the psychologists um, certainly can help with the diagnosis. Okay. Um, it's prof- not often I see misdiagnoses. Mm. I often just see reaffirming You're affirming it. You're affirming it. Yeah. You're affirming yeah. It. Sure. Yeah. Chris is calling from Eastern Cape. Hi, Chris. Hi, Pamela. Hi. Um, hello, Prof. Um, Hi there. Prof, how are you, um, I'm, uh, I'm 30, 35 or 36 years old now, and I was put on Ritalin when I was, uh, I think, 14 years old. I, I went way. We moved to New Zealand, and it was just a traumatic move. And um, I fell off the rails, and I made the wrong friends. And anyway, to cut a long story short, it really did change my life um, going on to Ritalin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my questions around dependency, but I want to sort of paint mm-hmm. a picture first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and so it did change my life, and everything was fantastic. And um, but I. I kicked against it for, for six months because I said, buggy, you lot, you're not going to tranquilize me. Mm, mm. You need to learn to deal with me. Mm, mm. Don't, I mustn't fit the system. The system must fit mm. me, that type of thing. Mm. And my mother was on my side and my father was on the police side. Mm. And um, eventually I did go on to it and everything turned out beautifully and my rugby coach played a big role in my life and I got through my trick and so on and so on. But when I finished school, I then went off it mm-hmm. and I battled to cope. Mm. I battled to, because uh, I hadn't learned to function mm. without it. Mm. And I started studying through UNISA a few years ago, and I had to go back onto it. Mm. Now I'm finished with UNISA, and now I'm 
running my own business and I'm pulling 18-hour days and I drive 9,000 kilometers a month all over the Eastern Cape. And I'm, I can't function without it now. Mm. Um, and so I understand that I can't function. Where I'm going with this is, do you really want to put a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old mm. onto this thing before they've learned to function mm without it mm. and then only then let them try and learn to be themselves in 18 mm. excellent uh, question chris prof chris thanks for sharing your story i i think there are many many people who can uh, identify with your story but 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 there is, there's a misconception that i just want to fix here mm-hmm. if you are going to change in any way and it's not always possible but if you are going to change the way the brain works mm-hmm. In other words, the deficit that's there mm-hmm. is critically important to medicate early. Um, I, I've always sure. said between six and nine years of age, it might even be a little bit this way or that way, but it's that is the critical age group where you can still teach the brain new tricks. Mm-hmm. You can start okay. the medication at any age. That doesn't matter. You know, somebody asked me in a meeting on Saturday, well, what age can you give Britain? And I said, up to 80 years of age. It doesn't really matter. You can give it, but you don't have brain adaptive processes happening. But he's quite right that when you're on the medication Mm -hmm. and an older person or even an adult, you should be learning strategies to cope. And that is very important. But in a small amount of people, like 2 to 3% of adults, mm-hmm. they cannot function without the medication. It's not that they're addicted to the medication, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. could stop it within a day, mm-hmm. but it's just it helps them to organize their lives so that they can function better. And that's not a sign that you were weak or a sign that the system failed, that's just a sign that you need it. Do you define it as dependency? Yeah, it's not dependency. It's not dependency at all. It is just to, it, it has to do with functionality. If you are more functional on this medication, he, he's one of a group that have gone that use it and went back onto it, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. He's trying to imagine life without it, and I think and I think I get that. I get the fact that you could ask yourself, "What can my life be without this drug?" Yeah. Well, again, I'm saying that he's saying that we shouldn't give it to small children. I'm saying that's exactly what we should be doing. Because when you give it at 14, there's no recovery helping. It's only helping because it's helping. I don't know if it makes oh, sense. I see. Yeah. There is so no the changes in the, the way your brain works. The, the effects of the drug, which is, I think, to your point, earlier could actually alter for the better the brain. Whereas that later, is, yes. you're just assisting for... That's right. And, and he's quite right. That is when also you have to learn strategies to cope. Uh, over, over and above the medicine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Prof, let's yeah. take a quick break. Um, I've got lots of people calling in and we'll take them <laughs> after the headlines. <laughs> yeah. um, and I knew it was going to be an emotive one. So let's take a quick break and we'll take those calls. Lizzie, I see you in Boxburg and I see many of your other voice notes as well. And we'll take them after the headlines at 2.30 with Utsile Saku. Professor Andre Fenter is a neurodevelopment pediatrician, a former academic head at pediatrics at the Free State University. We're discussing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Lizzie, thank you for your patience. Good afternoon. You're calling from Boxburg. Hi. Good afternoon. How are you? We're good, thanks. Thanks for calling, Lizzie. Hi. Thank thank you. Thank you. Um, My son, when he was, I think he was, Five years old, 
he was diagnosed with that symptoms of, of HAD. Mm-hmm. He started using Ritalin, which would make him to be like a zombie. You know, he, he would just be something else. Mm-hmm. And with times, I, I was just checking if it would help him for that year. I remember the first year when he started taking it. But I did not see any much of change. Mm-hmm. They changed a dose. After changing a dose, he was worse. Mm-hmm. You know, to a point, if I can tell you now, to cut a long story short, he's now 16 years old. Mm-hmm. He's still battling with schoolwork. Mm-hmm. I had to take him out of school. He's studying at home. I'm, I'm homeschooling mm-hmm. him, but mm-hmm. he is battling. Mm-hmm. I don't know what can assist. Thank you, Lizzie, for your question, Prof. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is very sad. I think what people don't realize is that 30% of people with ADHD won't respond to the medication. Sure. So, I mean, there are other medications on the market now which I'm pretty sure weren't available when he was five years old. Um, we have much, many, many more options now. But that, that, is, that is a sadness. I, I think one wants the Ritalin to work because then it wouldn't have been the story. But if a child is so suppressed on the medication that he's zombie-like, as people often say, and it's not having any benefit, then you must please stop it. Uh, There's no sense in taking it then. Mm -hmm. But today we have other options that we can use. And so one thing that I want to say to parents is if you start with a trial, and I always say that the medication is only a trial, it takes two weeks to make a decision, um, then... If it's not working or not working long enough or not strong enough or it's too many side effects, you need to go back and say, this is not what I want. You mustn't just stop it and say it didn't work mm. because there are many more options. I'm sorry for that, Mom, because I think that is sad, but medication is not magic for everybody, but sometimes it's just great sure. magic <laughs> Prof, um, for some of the children. We, we, we keep talking about the same drug and I, I have, I have some reservations with that because exactly as, as we've just heard now, we only reference Ritalin. And I'm down here, just like any other painkiller, there would be a panado and a disprint and whatever the case may be. We don't do that with medication. We only speak of one drug and it puts people off once the only drug we talk about Mm. doesn't work. In fact, I didn't mention this name at all on the radio yes, yes. i did uh, no people I... that phone <laughs> yes. and the other people it, so that I, I won't yes um but there are essentially um two major groups of medication in adhd mm-hmm. there's there's the stimulant types and that's the one that you mentioned and all its sisters and brothers and generics and mm-hmm. all the rest of it and the, the ingredient that we use there is methylphenidate okay in the world literature, and again, I'm saying in this paper that just come out because it's, it, 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 it has been found to be the best medication for children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has good effect on adults, too. The, the other group of medications are the non-stimulants mm-hmm. that are available now, which, of course, I don't think was available to the mom that phoned just now. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and, and they, uh, their ingredient is, is something called atomoxetine, mm-hmm. but they are as different as chalk and cheese. Okay. I mean, in the way that they work, in the way that you give them, in the way that the effects and the side effects is very different. Sometimes you find when one doesn't work in a child, they really are doing much better on the other. Mm. And there's actually 
Within the stimulant group, I think there's now one, two, three, four, five, six different types, and there's two more coming within mm-hmm. the next six months. So there'll be eight variations of that theme, and in the non-stimulants, there are two, and then there's probably another two coming out. So you'll see that this, 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 this ability to treat children is improving all the time. But I again want to say that you can't just focus on meds. If the medication doesn't work, that is when you need the remedial teacher and, and, you know, and the placement. This mom has taken their child out of school and homeschooling. That is sometimes all the environment that, here. that you can offer. Yeah. And, 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 and that in itself is, shows an enormous commitment from this mother mm. and this child. Mm. So medicine does not work for everybody. As I said, 30% may not be so dramatic. Okay. Richard, you're in Peter Maritzburg. Hi. Hello, Tamara. Hi. Hi, Richard. Thanks for calling. Hello, doctor. Hi, Richard. Yes, I Richard. Uh, I also, I don't know what I had or I have uh, a child who's, who has ADHD. Mm-hmm. So what happened was when he went to high school, mm-hmm. I mean not primary, I think it was between grade one and grade three, uh, that, uh, the school couldn't cope with him in the class and they said, hey, he needs to go for a checkup and the doctor declared him as being as being having ADHD, mm-hmm. and I discussed with my wife, and we agreed that we need to help him. And the school insisted that we put him on medication, mm-hmm. and the medication started working. He was having cramps, and it just became like a cabbage in the class. Obviously, that's that's what the teacher needs so that the child is well behaved, so they can do their work. Which I sometimes feel as if. It could be that maybe the teachers have got too much in their plate. They don't have time to discipline children when they, they're not in the class or what, whatever the reason is. So we, I agreed and he started taking medication uh, between that time. But I was not happy about it. So I think uh, towards the end of grade three, I think that's when I, I just became a bit resistant. And the teacher told me that my son uh, needs, needs his medication because we haven't sent him sent him with it, then um, then I, I, I said, okay, we will send it, but I didn't. Then she started complaining that he's not finishing his work, he's staying in the class. Then I said, okay, uh, we're going to work on it. Then I asked the teacher, I said, do you know what are side effects of this medication that you asked my son to be taking? She said, no, she doesn't know, but, uh, she, doesn't know, but she doesn't think that it's, it's that bad. Then I went and did my, my own research and I checked that she, especially the dependency if everybody is talking about him and now on the phone, on the on the line. So now I, I just decided that no, I'm not going to do this thing. We need to find another way. So I think uh, a week later the teacher said, uh, Mr. Kumbi, what's going to happen with this child? Then I said, okay, it's fine. I'm going to work with him. So... One of the days he came back from school when the teacher told me that he didn't finish his work here to stay in the class. I told him, I said, but my boy, I'm not going to give you, there's no medication you're going to get. You just need to behave. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen to you. Oh. So, I think then I had another call from the teacher. All I did is I just told him to go and fetch the belt. He came, I gave it to his mom. And my son, up until today, is doing well academically. He never dropped. Whatever he did when he had, he had uh, medication, up until now, he's doing well. There's no changes. So what I'm saying is, 
uh, as parents, we also need to find ways how to help them. Like the other parent was saying, they've decided to school the child at home. Because what is better to discipline my child and get him to do his work properly than to give him something that he's not going to cope without? So what? that was our solution, and uh, it worked for us. What, what if it was? Can I ask you a quick question, Richard? What if the belt didn't work? What were we? What were you going to do then? Then maybe I would have given into this aid, uh, this medication, but we need to find ways around this thing because I know my son at home; he behaves mm. when I tell him to do something. He does, and he, and also the other issue that that I know is that it might not even be because it's a, it's, a, it's a sickness on him because I myself was very high pain school. I was all over the place. So, what he, it, it, genetically, I thought it could be that maybe it just took after me. And the, the only thing that helped me was discipline. So, that's why I resorted to that, and it worked. I'm not saying that parents must, must discipline their children uh, in that manner, but I'm just saying I would rather have my child help him the way that I feel will be able to solve the problem rather than having him to stay on, the, on something that is going to mess up his. His, his brains or whatever that might happen to him. So he's, he's well and good now. Yeah. <laughs> Prof, will you just sit on that for a minute? Sorry? <laughs> um, no, no, no. I was just asking if Professor Andre uh, Fenter could just maybe take a moment to think about what you've just said. <laughs> Richard, I'll be back with you in a short while. If you don't mind, I need to... Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. We're discussing ADHD. Um, we were having a conversation with Richard from uh, Peter Marisburg. Professor Andre Fenter is a neurodevelopment pediatrician, a former academic head of pediatrics at Free State University. Prof, let me give you a chance to respond to Richard. Pamela, uh, I really battled to hear all the things that Richard said. The line was a bit bad about me, but I think I got the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make a Two comments. The one is that I agree with Richard that parents have to be involved all the way. Okay, so you can't delegate the importance of your child's problem to somebody else. But secondly, I don't want the message to go out that through discipline we can just fix ADHD. Maybe his child didn't have ADHD. I don't know. I don't know him at all, so I can't comment. But discipline alone doesn't. In fact, I see many children that are around about 14 years of age who are completely burned out with a low self-esteem, with an anxiety issue, antisocial personality behavior, and all sorts of things because they were not treated adequately. So I don't want people to leave this meeting saying, well, my child has ADHD and all I'm going to do is I'm just going to punish him and cause discipline. But there's one other misconception I just want to address quickly, and this is this whole thing about dependency. I'm not sure where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You do not get dependent on this medication, not medically anyway. I mean, you might get psychologically dependent. That, that is a possibility. But it doesn't stay in your body. You know, you drink it today, you wee it out tonight. It doesn't okay. stay in your body at okay. all. Okay. It does not cause addiction. Okay. Um, in fact, if you look at the ADHD population, they are three times more likely to become addicted to, well, 50% more likely to, to smoke very early and three times more likely to use cocaine or something like that in adulthood I'm talking about. Is this looking for coping mechanisms, you think? So it's very, very high. The children that get treated do not do that. So in fact, the medication is actually protects you against dependency. Mm. It doesn't make you dependent. Mm. The other 
um, gentleman that phoned first, you know, from the Eastern Cape, also said that he's now dependent on it. He's not dependent on it. It's mm-hmm. like a diabetic. If you need insulin, then use it. He's he's functioning better because he can actually function better with the medication. It's not because he's dependent on it. Mm-hmm. If you withdraw medication, even if you use it for many, many years, you won't go through, you know, the jitters and the horrors and all yeah. the rest of those yeah. things that you get when you're dependent. There are lots of other things that are very important in treating this medication early. That It prevents you from becoming depressed. It pre- prevents you from having a low self-esteem. I, I see a lot of farmers here where I am in a free state, and many of them have ADHD, I have to tell you. And often when I speak to them, the question I ask is, are you happy with what you're doing? And 80% of them will say, I feel I could have done more with my life. Mm. And that's what you want to prevent. Mm. So again, if you go onto the medication, it doesn't mean you have to do it lifelong. It doesn't even have to mean you have to do it all your school career. But you have to give it time so that you can adapt and, 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 and function better. Sure. So I just wanted to address those because it, it, this is not a naughty little yeah. diagnosis, you know. It is a very critical diagnosis. Mm. Let me quickly go to Anonymous in KZN. Hi, Anonymous. Hi, Pamela. Um, good afternoon. Such a very emotional Hi there. Um, mm. um, topic. Mm. Um, I just wanted to ask the professor. I have two boys, one 13 and 7, and um, the 13-year-old, he was in Ritalin, and um, this is because he wasn't diagnosed with ADHD as in such, but it's a concentration issue, which, again, the 7-year-old has. Um my my thing about um, this medication is obviously I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of any medication on kids, um, but I've I've had to use it. We're using it on the seven year old right now, but we uh, I, so, I sort of um, discussed it with the um, pediatrician to stop the thirteen year old. We stopped around about ten years, so he hasn't been on it for the past three years, and he's he's coping fine. You know, average marks, concentration not so bad. I'm not getting so many complaints. And again, this touches on the issue that as parents, we don't necessarily um, see as much um, what the doc would see um, on, on, on um, so to say, my, I see my kids as normal. Mm-hmm. The baby is normal. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, mm-hmm. I, I see. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to know what, when, when it, is, it is a concentration problem, how long does one need to be on it? Um, you know, I, I remember my 13-year-old started around the age of six, and I stopped it around 10. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned now, especially with the seven-year-old. He's, he's, it, it, it's, it's a situation far worse than um, the, the, the other. The concentration issue is much more. How long does one need to be on this? And again, if I have another kid, what are the chances of, the child being on um, um, having issues with concentration. What really is this concentration? What causes it? Thank you. Okay, Prof, we've got literally a few minutes to answer the question. Yeah, okay, Pamela, I also didn't hear all of that, but um, what I can say is that the general consensus is that if you are going to ever use the medication, you should use it only for at least three years. So parents don't always have to have this feeling that they're putting their children on medication for life, okay? The second thing is, the minute your child is functional, you can stop the medicine. You don't have to use it when they're functional. But if they are not coping because of ADHD, not because of other things, you should continue. 
even if you stop it, there's no harm in starting it again if you need it. I see a lot of children who go Uber on Ritalin that go back to it in sort of grade 11, grade 12. That's fine. As long as it's done with somebody who has knowledge and it's not done because of the wrong reasons. Prof, I don't know if there was anything else that she asked that I haven't addressed. Um, what I can tell you, Prof, is that there are hundreds of people who have questions. We've run out of time. We are going to have to ask you to come back. We really are. Yeah, we, we, we will probably have to. Be, but, but I think, um, yeah, if, it's, if, it, if it serves the purpose, I'm very happy to do this again. Yeah, I appreciate it because I think it's also a very emotive. It's very difficult uh, for parents. Um, I know. Yeah, I know. So and much. I have great empathy with parents, even though it doesn't sound like it. Oh, no, no, no. I think I understand what you what you say. Yeah. Professor Andre Fenter, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, he's a neurodevelopment uh, pediatrician and a former academic head of pediatrics at Free State. Well, I promise you, university, we'll promise you we'll try and get him back again soon.